Welcome to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Visit heartstrong.life forward slash login to access the notes from today and all the benefits of our membership community. One to the two and two to the three. Let the world see the Holy Trinity. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples of Jesus together. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Got it. Everybody push, got it. Got it. <laughs> got it. <laughs> thank you, Pastor Joyce. Uh, and it is a joy for me to be here. And uh, we're, we are tackling 28 and 29 with 30 because I, I, I think those two chapters have to go together because if we just did one, we said, ah, where did that come from? So before we begin, let's um, look at our memory verse. And I will be very honest, I have not memorized it. So it's not my memory verse, it's a verse right now. So that is Romans 12, one to two. I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. Heavenly Father, this morning, you have a word for each and every one of us. So we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can come together uh, bright and early in the morning, Heavenly Father, to hear what you have to say. We could come together as this heart-strong family. So Heavenly Father, our ears, our spiritual ears, our hearts are open. So we're asking you, Lord, right now to speak to each and every one of us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. From Genesis to Revelation, there's a thread of redemption running through the entire Bible. Generation after generation, God used the sacrifice of innocent animals to foreshadow the ultimate sacrifice for sin that would come, the death of Jesus Christ, God's own son. When Adam and Eve first rebelled against God's command, it was necessary for one of two things to happen. Either sinners needed to forfeit their lives to pay for their sin, or a sacrifice would have to be made in their place. For Adam and Eve, animals were slain by the Lord to provide clothing to cover their shame, a powerful symbol of the Lord's grace. Throughout the Old Testament, this pattern of sacrifice continued in daily offerings, Sabbath offerings, monthly offerings, and offerings at feasts. And throughout the centuries, countless innocent animals were sacrificed to forestall these judgments of God upon the guilty. Now, like I said, I know that Numbers uh, 20, chapter 28 was last Friday's, but we will be um, starting, starting with that one. The sacrifices that we will cover in chapter 28 speak to their, the daily sacrifices made by fire. These sacrifices were made in the morning and evening, and we will also see sacrifices for Sabbath day and for what are called the high days, such as Passover. In chapter 29, we will look at the sacrifices on the Day of, Je uh, day of Atonement, the Festival of Tabernacles, and the eighth day of the festival known as the Great Day. In chapter 30, we're going to go over vows, in other words, keeping promises. These Old Testament sacrifices that we're going to be talking about today foreshadow the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
They could never take away sins. They could only cover them, hiding them from God's sight. The need for a permanent, perfect, once-for-all sacrifice still existed. That sacrifice would transfer the perfection of the one being sacrificed, Jesus, to the imperfect sinners, us, and the sinners' imperfections would fall upon the perfect sacrifice. So let me set the stage for you in chapters 28 and 29. The Israelites are camped just outside the promised land. They realize they must fight the inhabitants there in order to conquer the land. In these two chapters, God is essentially saying, not only will you win this war, but this is how I, God, want you to worship me once you get to the promised land. These two chapters describe each of the daily, weekly, monthly, and special sacrifices that the Israelites must make in order to worship God. The Israelites are required to sacrifice thousands of animals, over a ton of wheat, and many gallons of wine to God yearly on a sacrificial altar. What this also shows is that God provided for them all the animals, wheat, and grapes in order to make those sacrifices. So why do we need to study this? God takes sin seriously. The reason why all of these sacrifices were made is to remember how seriously he does take sin. The idea is that a special, uh, the, the idea is that a price is to be paid. Those animals burnt on the altar were in effect the price paid for the Israelite sins. So let's dig in. And I'm not going to read these verses one by one because there's way too much. So we're going to start at verses one and two. So who's talking to who? God is giving a direct command to Moses. If you recall from chapter 27, God just finished telling Moses that he was going to die soon by going up to a mountain, see all of Israel from the view up there, and then he was going to die. Then he told him to name a replacement. And then the next order of business is to explain how God is to be worshipped when they get to the promised land. And if you notice, God hasn't spoken yet about how the land will be conquered or how life will look once they get there. God is essentially saying, let me worry about how the land gets conquered. You just focus on worshiping me, and I promise to take care of the rest. So throughout this, this morning, I'm going to be asking you a few questions. And here's question number one. How many times in a day do we wrestle with trying to get things done, trying to conquer our mountains, so to speak, and forget that God has everything under control, and all he wants is our focus on him? Moving on to verses three and eight, three, two, eight. The first requirement is two lambs are burnt up, one in the morning and one in the evening. This is where we can remember that Jesus was our sacrificial lamb. Mixed with the lamb was a grain offering and a liquid offering made from olive oil. Keep in mind that this was a large quantity being offered. On a side note, one thing we should always know is that God never asks us to do anything that he doesn't also provide the materials for us to do what he asks. Over and above an animal and food offering twice a day, there was a strong drink offering. Think, as, think of this as preparing a quantity of wine, not for drinking, but for pouring it out over the sacrifice. Don't forget that this is a twice daily requirement, so it's a large quantity that is needed here. Verse 9 speaks to on the Sabbath day. So what's so special about the Sabbath? The word Sabbath literally means to rest. And this doesn't mean we just sleep in on Sunday or whatever our Sabbath day happens to be. The idea of rest is in terms of rest in him. 
On Sabbath, two more lambs are offered over and above the daily ones. That just mean God, means that God required twice as much as the other days of the week. Again, the idea is simply about taking one day a week to focus, him, focus on him twice as much as the rest of our lives. So here's my question number two. Do I, do we take, take twice as much time with God one day a week? So we're going to move on to the monthly offerings in verses 11 to 15. Over and above the daily and weekly requirements, every month, two bulls, one ram, and seven lambs are to be sacrificed. With each of these animals, there was to be a sacrifice, to be sacrificed some flour and some olive oil. A drink offering was also to be made along with these uh, animal sacrifices. Did you notice that there was only one ram offered? The first significant mention of a ram in the Bible was in Genesis. When Abraham was about to offer up Isaac in chapter 22, God told him to offer a ram instead, a ram that he provided. Ever since then, a ram is a symbol of a substitute offering in the Bible. The single, single ram here is given as a reminder that God provides a substitute for our sins. Finally, seven lambs were to be offered. The number of seven is associated with completeness. Just as God rested on the seventh day, offering seven lambs on this day is God's way of saying the complete price of sin is taken care of. That monthly reminder of those sacrifices reminds us the price of sin has been completely paid. Until Jesus's blood sacrifice was made for us, this complete picture of what Jesus did for us was made monthly. As for the drink offering, Think of Paul describing his life as being poured out as a drink offering in the New Testament. The idea is that we commit our lives to serving him and our lives are being poured out like this offering to him. A single goat is also to be sacrificed monthly. The first mention of a goat as a specific sacrifice in the Bible is in Genesis 27, when Rebecca made a goat skin covering for her son Jacob in order to deceive her father, his father Isaac. Therefore, in the Bible, a goat is often associated with sin and deception. By offering a single goat as part of this ritual, it is a reminder that their sins are burnt up and forgiven on this altar. From verse 16 until the end of chapter 29, the focus is now on specific annual holidays throughout the Jewish calendar. Just as each of these animal sacrifices point to what Jesus did on the cross for us and point to our commitment to serve him, so these holidays also remind us of how God wants us to keep our focus upon him. Let's move to verse 16. This one verse alone speaks of the holiday of Passover, and that likely there was only one verse because we already it was already described in detail in earlier in Numbers chapter, uh, chapter 9. However, I would like to add a little something right here. In Leviticus, the appointed feasts of the Lord are listed meaning to be remembered and observed at a particular time on the calendar, one of them being Passover. One of the most important events in the hours before Jesus's death was the Last Supper, and the timing of the Last Supper was special because it took place during Passover. A minor detail? Hardly. Jesus used it to connect his death and resurrection to the, to the Israelites' exodus of Egypt. Keep in your remembrance right now what we studied in mid-May about Passover. Passover was a crucial event that the Jewish people observed for hundreds of years before the Last Supper. The meal consisted of bread, wine, and a sacrificial lamb. 
In Matthew 26, 26 to 28, it says this. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And I won't uh, read 28, 27 and 28, but these words, with these words, Jesus linked the Passover to God's plan to redeem the world. The final element of the Passover meal is a lamb. This wasn't an accident. It was a symbolic statement. Jesus is the Passover lamb. With these words, Jesus saw himself as the unblemished male lamb that would, put to death, would, would be put to death so that others may live. Moving on to verses 17 to 25. Verse 17 says that there is to be no eating of yeast mixed with, mixed with bread. Yeast, also called leaven, is what makes bread rise. The symbolic idea is that if we leave sin alone, it grows and gets worse. Therefore, by not eating any bread with yeast, the idea is that sin is not growing in their lives. I won't go into more detail here because Pastor Terry covered that topic quite well last month. But I do have a question. Question number three. Is there any sin in my life, in our lives, that has not been dealt with? Moving on to verses 26 to 31. The Feast of Weeks comes seven weeks after the spring holidays, 50 days after the first regular Sabbath after Passover. Christians know this holiday as Pentecost, which is a Greek term that means 50. The Christian significance is that the church was born on that day. Now, to state the obvious, the Jewish people of that day had no idea the church would be born on that particular day. The reason this was a holiday was that it was a time of the year that when wheat was first harvested. On the, first, on the day of first fruits, some of the wheat was dedicated to God. It is another reminder that God's people are trusting God to provide for their future. They were expressing their gratitude by offering the earliest and best, the new grain, to God. Just as we today dedicate a part of what we've just earned to show our trust in him to continue to provide. And looking to Jesus, Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first fruits were the first of the season's crops given by faithful Jewish people to God. Paul's use of the term here means that Jesus was the first of the crop of the dead to be resurrected. His was the example for what lies in stores for believers in the future. In other words, that harvest has only just begun. As God raised Jesus back to life, he will collect all those who trust in Christ to life as well when the time comes. So we're going to move on to chapters 29, all the verses 1 to 34. The first day of the seventh month is New Year's. The Israelites were to blow horns to mark the first day of the year. It is the idea that God has helped them get through another year. Therefore, this holiday is a time of celebration, just like our New Year's is considered a time of celebration. On the 10th day of, this, of the same month is a serious holiday where Jewish people are to confess their sins and seek his forgiveness, the Day of Atonement. This is considered the only serious holiday because it is not a time of celebration, but a time to confess one's sin to God. In a nutshell, since it is a new year, let us begin clean by confessing whatever sins we have committed in the past. Perhaps instead of us making New Year's resolutions that we can't seem to keep for more than a week, 
we should be doing much the same. Job 13, 23 says this, how many are my iniquities and sins make known to me my rebellion and my sin. On the 15th day of the same month is an eight day long holiday, Sukkot, where the Jewish people are to remember how their ancestors had to live in the wilderness for 40 years. For the first seven days, the Israelites lived in booths to remember the, the time their ancestors lived in the wilderness. When celebrated today, the idea is to live uncomfortably to realize that God guides them and us through tough times for his glory. Sukkot, also, also known as the uh, Festival of Tabernacles, brings an atmosphere of joy, reflecting the biblical man to be joyful at your feast in Deuteronomy 16, 14. As for the animal sacrifices, everything is the same, except that the number of bulls is one less than the day before. Verse 13 mentions 13 bulls on the second day, 12 bulls, and so on until the seventh day when only seven bulls were offered. Now, when I read that, my immediate response was why? And honestly, I asked a lot of people why. And there was too many, too many different scenarios. So if you're asking the same question and don't have the answer like I didn't find the answer, I will leave you with a few words from Matthew Henry. Such was the will of the lawmaker and that is reason enough for the law. In other words, if God said that is what he wants from us, that should be good enough. And needing to know the why, God himself knows why. Verses 35 to 38. The eighth day closed out the festival of Sukkot with Sabbath-like work restrictions. I learned that according to Jewish tradition, on the first morning of Sukkot, a procession of priests went down to the pool of Siloam to bring up to the temple a golden container of water sufficient to last throughout the first seven days of the feast. This was done to remind everyone of the water God miraculously provided for a thirsty Israel in the wilderness and to pray for rain for the following year growing season. This was called the water drawing festival and it refers to Isaiah 12, two to three. The eighth day closed out the festival. It seems that on the eighth day or the great day as it was referred to, all the water was poured out with great ceremony. Now last month, Pastor Terry made mention that Jesus who would have celebrated Sukkot on the last day of the feast, the eighth day or the great day as it was called, after all these sacrifices had been or ordered and all the water being poured out that our Lord Jesus stood and cried to those who still thirsted after righteousness to come unto him and drink. John 7, 37 to 38 says this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus suggests that those who drink of the water he gives will themselves become sources of this living water. Verses 39 and 40 are a summary of the last two chapters. They say in effect that over and above what the Israelites offer to God out of their own free will, do all of these sacrifices in order to keep their focus on him throughout their days, weeks, months, and years. They were used for the Israelites to keep their focus upon God throughout their lives. Since these rituals had to be done over and over again, it shows the insufficiency of these sacrifices over time and the necessity of God himself to pay the price for our sins. 
All these sacrifices do point to what Jesus did on the cross. Hebrews 9, 12 says this. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Many of you have heard me say how God has been making more clear to me what is meant by the word became flesh as written in John 1.14. These Old Testament animal sacrifices were not capable of making atonement once for all, but there was one sacrifice that answered to the demands of the will of God. Christ sacrificed his body once for all to atone for the sins of the people. As the eternal word of God, he could not die. Therefore, God prepared a body for Christ. Only as a man could he fulfill the will of God by dying as a bloody sacrifice. God provided the son with a perfect body to fulfill his, his eternal purpose. The word became flesh doesn't mean he was a baby born in the stable, but rather a fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. In Genesis 3.15, he's called the rescuer of all humanity. In Isaiah 7.14, Jesus will be born of a virgin, having God alone as his father. Also, someone had to fulfill the requirements of the law or the penalty of the law would still be in effect. Every sin had to be paid for or atoned for. No sin escapes this requirement. Jesus ultimately became the required sacrifice, the sacrifices that we have just been studying today that the law demands. And could I say right now, if you are listening to me and you have not put your trust in Jesus as Savior, then you are still under the requirements of the law, meaning there will be a requirement to pay for your sin. If this is you, please reach out to Pastor Barry or Pastor Joyce sooner than later. As believers today, we can learn the following practical lessons from these offerings. One, all of them are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The blood of animals can never take away sin, but the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Two, the nation could not have functioned without the ministry of priests. They represented the people before God and offered the sacrifices that he required. But today, Jesus Christ is the believer's high priest in heaven. Three, Passover. Either we let the lamb take our sin or we have to die for our sin. These Four, these sacrifices were very explicit and routine. The best form of life is a disciplined life. And five, the people gathered together to celebrate and worship. There is an extra benefit and blessing to be gained from worshiping with other believers. In closing these two chapters, I must add for any of you who might be asking yourself, the Jewish practice of animal sacrifice ended in AD 70, the year that the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. With the temple gone, there is no longer a place for the sacrifices to be offered according to the Mosaic law. Modern Jews believe for that forgiveness of sin is obtained through repentance, prayer, and good deeds. So now we're going to move on to chapter 30, the law concerning vows. As we begin to read this chapter, we see something rather unusual. Quite often, the Lord's words through Moses will be to all the children of Israel or the whole congregation or something similar. Here is a unique incident. Moses is said to speak to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel. In Leviticus 27, Moses had touched on the subject of, of vows in terms of dedicating people and possessions to the Lord. But here he deals with personal vows 
and how they are affected by relationships. The chapter makes it clear that the home is basic to the nation, that there must be authority and regulation in the home, and that truth is what binds society together. In chapters 28 and 29, we read about daily, Sabbath, monthly, and annual offerings. At the end of those two chapters, it said this, these you shall present to the Lord at your appointed feast, beside your vowed offerings and your freewill offerings, as your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, as your drink offerings and your peace offerings. These, there are required offerings and there are vowed offerings. This section now deals with vows, and so it must be considered who has the responsibility in determining if the vow stands or not. But before we go further, let's ask the simple question, what is a vow? According to the Holman Treasury of Key Bible Words, a vow is a solemn pledge to do something or behave in a certain manner. A vow is often thought of as a human act alone, but in the Bible, a vow is made before God alone. While a person can swear to a person or to God, they could, only, they could vow only to God. In the Old Testament, the, lost, the, the Lord saw and heard all vows. Not honoring a vow was therefore a grave sin. It was considered better not to make a vow than to make it and not keep it according to Ecclesiastes 5, 4 to 6, simply saying, I made a mistake by making the vow was no excuse. Over the centuries, vows became part of Israel's religious culture. Individuals making a fervent request in prayer might add to their petition a, a, a vow that if the prayer was answered, they would fulfill a specific promise as Hannah did when she gave birth to her long-awaited child. We read in Numbers uh, 30 about the regulation of vows, or more specifically, concerning the relationship between a man and his wife, or between a father and his daughter in his house during her youth. Here it is in a nutshell. If you are a man, you must keep your vow and your obligation. If you are a widow or a divorced woman without a husband you are under, you must keep your vow. If you are a married woman and your husband is silent or verbally agrees, you must keep your vow. But if he decides you shouldn't have made the vow that you made, he can speak such and your vow will be forgiven before the Lord. It's not binding. If you are a woman in her father's house during her youth and you make a vow, if the father is silent when he knows about it, then she must keep her vows. But if her father says no and prohibits her, the vow is not binding and the Lord will forgive her. A man can free his wife or daughter from a vow if he thinks it is not appropriate. And when a husband or father does so, the woman is absolved of the duty to keep her vow on any obligation to deny herself. So what's at the heart of the matter here? If a man made a vow rashly, it didn't matter. He had to keep his vow. But if a woman made a rash commitment, a husband or a father to the girl in his household could cancel her commitment and she could be free before the Lord. This was his act of covering or protection of her, giving oversight into the vows and commitments she had made. I would like to read a snippet from the life application from every chapter of the Bible by Campbell Morgan. And he says this. Now, what did these careful enactments mean? They are of the utmost importance as they reveal the divine conception of the necessity for the maintenance of the unity of the family. 
In no family must there be two supreme authorities. And here, as always in the divine arrangement, the headship is vested in the husband and father. It can easily be seen how, where this were this otherwise, through religious vows, discord, and probably a probable disruption in the family life would ensue. The measure in which modern society has departed from this deed is the measure of its insecurity. Of course, after many centuries, the issue of oaths in general came to be redefined. People would say that if you made an oath this way, it was made invalid. And if you made an oath that way and, and, or another way, it meant that you didn't need to keep it or have to. Whatever, uh, something like today, crossing your fingers behind your back in today's culture. But Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Again, you have heard it, what, heard it, what was said to the people long ago. Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make a, one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. An oath was an oath, is what Jesus was saying. If you make it, keep it but best yet to not make it at all. So I have one last question for you. Faith and obedience were crucial for Israel's success. What is a current circumstance in your life that calls for both of these? That's that. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to visit heartstrong.life to access our daily blog for even more encouragement. Visit the Heartstrong shop with all kinds of merch like hoodies and t-shirts and mugs to remind you of this journey of discipleship that you're on. You can log in to heartstrong.life forward slash login to access your member content, resources, and downloads. We have live Bible studies for adults, students, and a Bible bootcamp for kids. Let's become heartstrong disciples together.